We'd like to look at the message of this prophet, particularly as it relates to his prophecy of the coming of our Lord Jesus. It occurred to me some weeks ago, in thinking back over our Christmas times, that our children, as they were growing up, were always afraid of Santa Claus. We never could get them to sit on his lap and ask for anything. It uh, never was uh, much of an issue with us. We uh, never made uh, much of an issue of Santa Claus, uh, except to tell our children who he was and what he represented. And uh, yet they were always afraid of him. And uh, as I think back over those years, I think they were right. Uh, I think I'm somewhat afraid of Santa Claus myself these days, particularly as he represents the, uh, the spirit of our age. We've talked a bit over the past few weeks about what worldliness really is and uh, the various guises in which worldliness appears. We sometimes think we have it pinned down, but it's a very elusive sort of thing. Basically, it's an attitude. It's an attitude of indifference toward God. The world is a community of flesh-governed individuals, people that, uh, that feel they're confident in, in themselves to face life and its demands. They don't really need God to be godlike or to be satisfied or fulfilled. And it's very easy, I think, to pick up that spirit even though we belong to the Lord Jesus and begin to reflect that same attitude of indifference towards spiritual things and get preoccupied with the wrong things. And I think Christmas time is uh, that's a particularly dangerous period of time because it's very easy to focus on material things and think that it's that things go better if you have more things. And that simply is not true. I was looking at the uh, Sports Illustrated a couple of weeks ago, and they had displays of the latest cross-country ski equipment. And uh, they had all these neat-looking nylon stretch uh, one-piece uh, racing suits, and I started thinking about my baggy corduroy pants and uh, thought, now how in the world can I get out on the, uh, out on the snow with that, uh, that ancient uh, apparel? And uh, you start thinking, my, my, I could have so much more fun if I just had uh, something better to ski in. But that simply is not true, and we know that. Uh, the world has, uh, has really uh, seduced us, I, I think, into thinking that things in themselves will make us peaceful and more fulfilled and more satisfied, and that simply is not true. There's nothing wrong with things in and of themselves. But when we start believing that it's material things, that make life more enjoyable, then we're on the wrong track. And uh, this prophet, I think, straightens out our thinking in that regard, and I'd like to try to trace, to some extent, the argument of this prophet through his book. Uh, Micah was a prophet of the, uh, of the 8th century B.C. He lived about uh, the latter part of, of the 700s before Christ came. Micah lived in a little town called Morasheth, right on the Mediterranean coast. He lived in a farming community. He was a contemporary of some of the better-known prophets, like Hosea and Isaiah. Uh, yet his ministry was somewhat different. Isaiah was a court historian. He lived in the court in Jerusalem. And he ministered to the, to the kings and the priests and the leaders there. But uh, Micah lived in a, in a rural community. And therefore, he understood something of his times that uh, perhaps those living in Jerusalem couldn't see. He had a different perspective on life. Uh, outwardly at this time, the nation of Judah was very prosperous. They were wealthy. 
and uh, relatively powerful as a nation. They had a great deal of military might, and yet inwardly they were decaying spiritually. Morally they were corrupt. And it began in Jerusalem with the leadership there. They had turned away from the Lord, and though outwardly they appeared to be very religious, yet inwardly they were empty. And they were beginning to oppress the poor people. And they were in an inflationary spiral, much as we're in today. And, and the more the, the poverty-stricken worked, the, the poorer they became. And they were very distressed. And people were, the wealthy were, were uh, acquiring more and more land. And the poor were getting poorer. And instead of trusting in God, they were beginning to form alliances with, uh, with other countries, with Assyria and with Egypt, and trusting in their military might and their treaties rather than in the Lord God of of Israel. It's a period that Hosea describes as the silly dove period in history. They were like doves flying from one place to the, to the next and looking for security and trying to finding it, find it in things and in people. And, and their situation was very much like ours is today. And it's against this backdrop that Micah addresses his prophecy. Now let's begin with chapter 3. The first two chapters of Micah are a general prophecy directed toward Israel and Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And then beginning with chapter 3, he begins to rebuke the leaders and the prophets. And in verse 11, he says, Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. The, uh, the priests and the leaders were corrupt, and they were teaching and prophesying for money. They were telling people what they wanted to hear. And yet they were saying, God will never judge us because the temple is in Jerusalem, and God would never destroy his, his temple. Uh, it's very much like today. We still have in God we trust in our money, and yet uh, that's, that's merely a slogan. There's no reality to it. We as a nation are not trusting in God. And yet we still have the strange idea that we're a, a Christian country, we're a godly country, and God won't judge us. But Micah says to this uh, ancient nation, God will judge you. In verse 12, Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, the temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. And uh, within less than 150 years, that prediction came true. Nebuchadnezzar led the Babylonian troops into Jerusalem. They sacked and burned the city, destroyed the temple. The uh, Babylonian soldiers, in trying to get the uh, gold that melted and ran down between the stones when the temple burned, pried the stones apart so that there was literally not one stone left on another when Nebuchadnezzar left the city of Jerusalem. And the temple mound, the place that they thought was inviolate, did become a place where thorns and thistles grew. This happened in 586, less than 150 years after Micah prophesied in the 8th century. But Micah begins immediately after this prediction of destruction to prophesy of a restoration, which is so characteristic of the Lord. He may have to tear down. And all of us, I think, from time to time go through that process of, of having God tear down portions of our life, areas where we have felt strong in ourselves, and God had to bring them down. But he always begins to restore. He's redemptive in everything he does. That's the nature 
of uh, his concern for us. And in chapter 4, we read, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established. You see, he, he predicts the destruction of the temple and almost in the next breath, the restoration of that temple. The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and peoples will stream to it. And some 50 years after the destruction of that temple in 586, the Jews returned from Babylon and they began to rebuild the temple. And within 20 years, they had rebuilt it, not in its former state, but at least they had a temple where they could worship. So this prediction was fulfilled. Micah goes on to describe the um, gathering of all nations at that house. And God would teach them his ways and the law would go out, go out from from Jerusalem, and he would judge between many nations, and they would beat their swords into plowshares. In other words, from the very place where injustice had gone, gone out, now there would be justice and truth and peace. And then in verse 6 of chapter 4, Micah predicts the regathering of God's people. In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame, I will assemble the exiles and those I have brought to grief. I will make the lame a remnant, those driven away, a strong nation. At the same time, the people came back to rebuild the temple. They began to come back to populate the city of Jerusalem. And by the time the temple was rebuilt, Jerusalem was filled with people again. And they were beginning to work their lands and uh, worship there at the temple. So this regathering was fulfilled. And then in verse 8, of chapter 4, as for you, O watchtower of the flock, O stronghold of the daughter of Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to the daughter of Jerusalem. In other words, the authority of the king would be reestablished in Jerusalem. There would be a seat there for a king, a place for him to rule. So everything was in readiness. The temple was restored. The people had regathered. And uh, the authority of the nation had been given back to them. But there was no king. And for many years, there was no king over the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, that's the reason why the book of Chronicles was written, to prepare the people for the king. But he didn't come. They had Persian governors. They had, uh, when the Greeks conquered uh, Palestine, they appointed their leaders. And when the Romans came, they appointed their leader. Herod being one of them, the hated Herod, who was not a Jew. He was an Edomite appointed by Caesar Augustus to rule the Jews. There was no king. And in this section from verses 9 through 5, chapter 1, we have a, something of a parenthesis in which Micah describes the intervening period from the time that the Babylonian uh, exile occurred down to the time when Jesus was born. Israel had no legitimate king. There was no one to rule. In 5, chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Marshal your troops, O city of troops. That's a reference to Jerusalem. In other words, get your troops together. Mass your troops. For a siege is laid against them. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. That's a sign of, of shame. One after another, Israel's rulers were, were stricken down by, by the Gentile nations. There was no king. No one came to set things right. There was no one to rule on the, on the, the throne of David. Until Jesus came. In chapter 5, verse 2, Micah prophesied this familiar uh, prediction. 
of the coming of, of Jesus. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Now, Bethlehem was just a, a tiny little village. It wasn't much of a, of a city at all. It was about the size of Eagle. And about as far away from Jerusalem as Eagle is from Boise. And it was sort of out of the way, off the beaten track. It's described here in Micah as too small to be numbered among the thousands of Israel. The custom then was to divide the population up into units of 1,000. That was a clan. And Bethlehem was so small they couldn't find a thousand people there, and so it couldn't be legitimately called a city. And even in Jesus' day, the Greek term that the apostles used to describe Bethlehem indicates that it's just a little village, a little tiny town, hardly worth mentioning, just a small spot on the, on the map, a wide spot in the road. It was a place where they used to quarter soldiers in Micah's day and in Jesus' day. And yet Micah says, from you, one will come out whose, literally, whose comings out, whose goings out are from of old. In other words, he will be born in Bethlehem, but he didn't begin there. He began, as Micah tells us, in ancient times. The Jews didn't have a word for eternity. They may not have even had the concept. This was the best they could do to describe the idea of eternity. The point that Micah is making is that one would be born in Bethlehem. He would have a, a point of origination there, but that's not really where he began. He began in eternity. As far back as one could think, he began. So he was a unique one. Not like any of the other kings of Judah. Not even like David or Solomon or Hezekiah or other of the great kings of Judah. He would be unique. Because he was God, born in a barn. Have you ever thought about that? That when the Lord chose to come, he came not to the royal house of Judah at Jerusalem. That's where you would expect the king to be born, in the court there. But he didn't. He was born in a barn. That's so like the Lord. To identify with us to that extent. That's the kind of Lord that we're related to. When he wants to change the world, he sends a baby. And he causes him to be born in a little out-of-the-way town. A little country town that nobody ever gave a thought to. And he quietly invades history and he begins to do his work in the, in the lives of men as he contacts them. And that's the way the Lord works. We always think of God's activity in terms of miracles and, and obvious displays of power, but God seldom works that way. He almost always works in quiet, inobtrusive ways that are not obvious in their beginnings. Who would have thought that this little child born on, on some dirty straw in a little town, little backwoods town, was God himself? That's the way the, the Lord that we love works. I spent some time this past week with Francis Simpson, who many of you know, and we were talking about how God works and uh, when he works in miracles and when he doesn't. 
And I was reminded as I was talking to her of a story that my father told me once about a woman who was uh, approached by a man who had trouble believing. And he said, if I just saw a miracle, then I'd believe God. If I just saw the water turn, it turned into wine, then I would believe God. I want something big and obvious that I can believe in. And this woman said, well, I don't know about turning water into wine, but when the Lord Jesus saved my Charlie, he turned liquor into groceries. And that's the sort of work that God does. He takes a life and he begins to change it. And almost imperceptibly, we begin to display more and more of the character of God. That's the way the Lord works. So he's the one whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And yet he was born in Bethlehem. And then he goes on in verse 3. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth. And the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. In other words, the rest of those that had not yet returned from exile would be gathered around the house of Jacob, the Israelites. But he says in verse 3 that there will be a time that Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth. And he's thinking here of, of the promise that was made to Eve. After sin came into the world and, and seemed to be the, the element that would destroy the beauty of and majesty of God's plan, God promised to Eve that one would be born from her who would trample the head of the serpent. He would be injured in himself in, in uh, crushing the head of the serpent. He would bruise his heel. But he would be the one who would set things right. And history waited for him. They waited as, as the line passed on down to, to Noah and then to Shem and to Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and then through one of Jacob's sons to Judah, and then through the tribe of Judah to David, and then through the line of kings from David, Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, and on down through the Judean kings, through Jehoiakim, and then the line went underground for a time. There were no kings of the line of Jehoiakim that sat on the throne until Jesus came. That's what the world was waiting for. And Micah tells us 800 years, 700 years before Jesus came, that there would be a time when Israel was abandoned. She would have no king until this one, the one whose goings forth, whose origins were from of old, until this one came. And when he came, he would draw the nation to himself. And he would be, as we read in verses 4 and 5, the shepherd king who would stand in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely or sit undisturbed. For he will be great to the ends of the earth. And he will be their peace. He's not a tyrant. He's a shepherd. They had, had enough of tyranny. They had suffered under the Gentile nations for... 400 years when Jesus came. And he was the shepherd that was, would tend his flock. It's characteristic of shepherds that they care for their flock. They don't kick the sheep. They don't abandon the sheep. They love the sheep. 
And he would shepherd them, we're told, in the strength of the Lord. In other words, he would have all the power of God himself at his disposal to take care of the needs of the sheep. Do you ever feel that you don't have the resources or the ability to face the demands of your life, the financial pressures, the marital pressures, the pressures of raising children, of living with parents, of making a living? Well, you ought to feel that way. It's legitimate to feel that way. God created us to feel that way. It's not wrong to feel inadequate and uh, to believe that we cannot cope with life because God created us to face these demands by dependence upon him. He's the one who meets these demands. Every demand upon us is ultimately a demand upon him. And therefore, Paul says, cast all of your anxiety upon him because he cares about you. He's a shepherd, king, who cares for the sheep. Uh, Micah uses a, an interesting play on words. In verse 4, he says, he will stand. They will sit, literally. They will rest. Why should we struggle? Why should we be anxious? Why should we feel that it all depends upon us? Because it doesn't. It all depends upon him. And if we understand that, then we can face life and say, I can't handle it. But he can, therefore I can. And we can live securely. Because we're told he is great. That's, uh, this is the passage that the angel quoted to Mary in Luke 1. He will be great. And uh, he will be the son of the Most High. And he will sit upon the seat of, uh, upon the throne of his father David. And of his dominion there will be no end. He will be great. This one will be great. He's the only one in the, in the universe who really legitimately uh, owns that title. He's the great one. Uh, it, it's one of the ironic things in history and geography that at this time when Jesus came, there was a man on the throne who called himself the great. It was Herod. Uh, Herod was, uh, was insane. There's no question about it. He murdered his wife out of jealousy. He loved her so much he was afraid he'd lose her to somebody else and so he killed her so no one else would have her. And they killed his, uh, his wife's mother. He killed most of his stepsons, others of his children. He was absolutely a madman. And uh, became so paranoid in his later years that he built a series of fortresses all over Palestine where he could hide away and, and feel more secure. All the time, you know, he, he, he earned the title of king by force, by conquering the uh, Judeans. The title was given to him by Caesar, but he grasped authority on his own. Tried to appease the Jews by his building projects. He built uh, the temple for them and did various other things, but the Jews hated him to the very end. And his reign is characterized by violence and murder and, and, and wickedness of every type. It's one of the curious things that, uh, about his life that he went down to Bethlehem and he built a palace there. We don't know if he did it because he knew this prophecy and he thought that uh, by providing a palace there, the king that was predicted would be born in his own house. We don't know. But he built an immense palace, which he named after himself with, with his typical modesty. He called it Herodium. If you ever go to Bethlehem today and you look off to the southeast, there's a flat top mountain there. It looks like a plateau, but it's obvious that it's artificial because there are no plateaus in that part of it. <laughs> of the country and here's this immense uh, cone-shaped mountain with the top cut off and 
and it's artificially heightened, and hardly anybody ever goes up there but uh, archaeologists and very young tourists these days. It's very difficult to get up on top of it, but uh, if you ever go up there, uh, there, there is a, a palace complex laid out on the top of this mound that was just for Herod and for his family, and it may well be that, that Herod thought that the king of the Jews would be born there. But he wasn't. He was born in a barn down in Bethlehem. He bypassed the palace. Herod the Great wasn't great. He's buried up there somewhere on the sides of the hill. Nobody knows where. He did absolutely nothing of any practical value or certainly nothing of any spiritual value for his times. He wasn't great. He didn't bring peace. Jesus is the one who's great. Micah tells us he is great and his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth and he will be peace. We've just uh, awarded the Nobel Peace Prize to a couple of men who may well be at war with each other before long. And uh, I wonder if anyone ever thought of awarding to the Lord Jesus the Nobel Peace Prize because he's the one who rightly deserves it. He's the one who will bring peace. Someday he'll bring it to our troubled world. He'll set things right. He'll rule and he'll rule justly and everything will be as it ought to be. For the time being, that's not so. He's letting men go and do as they please and wreak havoc and wreck lives and, and do everything that, that they can do to, to rebel. He's giving them that freedom. But in the interim, he's still the Prince of Peace. Isaiah predicted that, he, that the one who would come would be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the eternal father, the Prince of Peace. And here Micah tells us he is peace itself. And when you have him, you have peace. Your circumstances may be uh, unrestful. You may be under a lot of stress outwardly. But if you know the Lord Jesus and you're trusting in him and you're resting in his life, if you're sitting comfortably while he stands and shepherds you, then you have peace and rest and tranquility and quietness. That's something the world knows nothing about. Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. The world's peace is always short-lived. It's always superficial. It's always based on what man can do, what man can make, what man has said. It doesn't last. Jesus said, the peace I give you is not like the peace that the world gives. He is real peace. And in the verses that follow, verse 5b on to the end of the chapter, he describes the elements of that peace. And I'll merely read it and then make one or two comments in conclusion. When the Assyrian invades our army and marches through our fortresses, we will raise against him seven shepherds, even eight leaders of men. The Assyrians here represent all the enemies of, of Israel down through the ages. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Persians, the Romans, on down through history to the time of Christ. And they also represent all the enemies that, that inveigh against us, both from the outside and from the inside. The world around us, all the satanic powers that are, that are arrayed against us to try to overthrow what God is doing in our life, all the temptations 
All the allure that the world throws at us to, to go their way, the things that allure us, those are all the enemies outside. And then there are also enemies inside, our own flesh and our memories of the past and the patterns and habits of our life. Those are all enemies of our soul, and the Assyrians represent them. Micah tells us here that whenever the Assyrian invades our land, we will raise against him seven shepherds, even eight leaders of men. The uh, Jews are often given to using numbers in symbolic ways, and seven is the number of, of perfection. In other words, we will raise a perfect host, the perfect number, and as a matter of fact, even one more, seven plus one. And Paul says he is able to do exceeding abundantly above anything we ask or think. And again, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. They will rule the land of Assyria with a sword, the land of Nimrod with drawn sword. Nimrod was a city in Assyria, named for one of the great men in Assyrian history. He represents all form of hostility to God's rule. He will deliver us from the Assyrian when he invades our land and marches into our borders. The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for man or linger for mankind. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes, and no one can rescue. Your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies, and all your foes will be destroyed. These are all symbols. The first symbol is uh, that of dew and shower from the Lord. He says, we'll have an effect upon people. Refresh them and uh, have a, a calming and gracious effect upon those we come in contact with. And we'll be like lions. We'll have strength and authority in the midst of our circumstances. And then in verse 10, the Lord declares in that day, I will destroy your horses from among you and demolish your chariots. I will destroy the cities of your land and tear down all your strongholds. These were all the things that, that Judah was counting on, their military might. And later on in, in this book, Micah tells them that they ought to be ashamed of what they're proud of. There's nothing wrong with maintaining standing armies. Scripture gives us that sort of warrant. Because we live in a fallen world. But the point of scripture is don't trust it. Use it, but don't trust it. Only God is trustworthy. Judah had their confidence in their, in their implements of war, their swords and their chariots and their horses and their infantry and, and their walled cities. Micah says, the time is coming when God will sweep all of that away and all the things that you've trusted in, your natural strength, your human strength will be gone. And I will destroy your witchcraft and you will no longer cast spells. I will destroy your carved images and your sacred stones from among you. You will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will uproot from among you your Asherah poles and demolish your cities. And as I look through this uh, list of things that God will do for us, two things strike me. Peace means having authority and purity. God will give us authority over every enemy, our temper. You know, I, I think some of us, um, we regret so deeply the things that we've said to our children and to our husbands and 
and wives and times when we've lost our temper and just completely lost control of ourselves, lashed out at people that we love the most, deeply regret those times, and, and God wants to, to deal with our tempers. We may fail, but God wants to give us increasing victory in those areas of our lives. Our irritability, our lack of self-control, our pride, our hatred of people that have treated us uh, unjustly. All of these uh, enemies from without and from within, God wants to deal with and will deal with them. He'll give us authority over them and will have impact on the lives of others. We'll be like dew and like rain from the Lord in their lives. Instead of leaving behind emptiness and sterility, our effect will be to make people more fruitful. And he'll make us like a strong lion in the midst of our enemies. And we'll increasingly eradicate out of our lives those strongholds where we feel strong, where we feel competent, and teach us to trust him. Because after all, that's where our strength comes. That's what Paul learned. He, uh, he thought that if uh, God would just take some of these weaknesses out of his life, then, uh, then he'd be strong. And, and God taught him that he wanted him to be weak so he could be strong. Not self-confident, but God-confident, because that's where our strength comes from. Now, that's the, sort of, uh, that's the sort of effect that Micah predicts the Messiah will have when he comes. He'll bring peace. Some of you have seen this statement. I think it originally came out of Campus Crusade. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for th three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things one usually associates with greatness. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave. Nineteen centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race and the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the kings that ever reigned have not affected the life of man as much as that one solitary life. C.S. Lewis said that down through the ages, men might, uh, if they need wisdom, cry out, William Shakespeare, help me, and nothing much happens. Or if they need strength, they might cry out, and here you see Lewis's English background, Billy Budd, help me, and nothing much happens. But he says for 1,900 years, Whenever men and women in desperate need have cried out, Lord Jesus, help me, something has happened. That's the one who came 1,900 years ago. This was the passage, as you well know, that, that brought the wise men from the East. They weren't Jews. They weren't believers at all. They were probably Zoroastrian, stargazers, astrologers. And they followed the stars to Jerusalem, and as I pointed out before, to the wrong king in the wrong place. But it was in Jerusalem that the priests read this prophecy to them, and on the basis of this prophecy, it led them to the baby in the manger in Bethlehem. And this passage leads us today 
to the right king in the right place. And wise men still seek him there. Let's pray, shall we? I would like to ask you to pray silently with me as I remind us of some of the things that, that Micah has taught us. Will you thank him, first of all, that he came, that he was willing to be born among us, to identify with us. And will you thank him that he is our shepherd and is the one who gives us rest. And if he's not yet your shepherd, will you ask him to be so? And will you thank him for the authority that he's brought into our lives? There's no sin that ought to tyrannize us or victimize us. Thank him that we have victory. Think of some specific habit or sin in your life and thank God that he's given you authority in that area of your life. And ask him to make you like dew, like a shower in people's lives. To have that sort of refreshing effect. And Father, we thank you that you came into this world as rotten as it was for us. And we thank you that you've come into our lives, as rotten as they may be, to give us a new quality of life, to give us ruling authority, to give us the ability to, to have a beneficial and gracious effect on people's lives. And during this Christmas season, Father, help us to, to focus correctly to think biblically and not be taken in by the world and its way of, of bringing peace. Help us to be balanced, Father, in every way. We thank you so much for this Christmas season and for the opportunity to be together with our families and to share together the, our love and our gifts and all that we have. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.